Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. We can use lots, lots. We just put an explicit <laughs> rating and, uh, and we, okay, we can 50 cent this thing. <laughs> I plan on crying a bit, so there's going to get ugly. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. And Thank you. Uh, so uh, why don't we start? Well, first off, guys, welcome to Paul. Is it Melander? Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah, awesome. yes absolutely. Okay, great. Welcome to the podcast. So um, why don't we start with what you do? Because if I go to your website right now, um, it's, I see an animation rigging test. I see a painting demo. I see something that looks like it's in oil. And then I see something that looks like yeah. it's in digital painting. And so I'm seeing like, what is it you do? I do everything. Um, yeah. uh, that sounds obnoxious, doesn't it? Sorry it does. about that. <laughs> Uh, actually, <laughs> actually uh, just uh, over the years, I just, um, at times things were so desperate, I, I had to learn how to do anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. So um, uh, now what I do is uh, I do, I'm a contractor and um, I work in uh, film and TV and video games and commercials and book illustration and anything that comes along. Actually, uh, the last couple of years I've been um doing some scientific visualization, which I like quite a bit. Uh, usually I do that kind of stuff pro bono because it's fantastically fun. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and uh, I get to interact with some some interesting folks. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I uh, in CG, I do anything I can get my hands on. Don't love rigging, but <laughs> if I have to, I'll do it. Actually, there are parts of it I like. I do like... Um, uh, the sculpting parts of it, like uh, doing the post-paste deformers and morphs and whatnot to add the extra musculature and um, mm -hmm. uh, emphasis and cognitive cues to make a thing trespass that uncanny valley problem. Mm. But yeah, so I, 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 um, I, I still revert back to the traditional daily. Um, uh, I, I'm at heart a traditional artist, so pencil and paper, oils, that type of stuff is still my private go-to, but I, I rarely do it for um, uh, for commercial work anymore. I usually kind of keep it uh, private and untouched. Hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, do you mind throwing your website up on the page so people can see you or see your... Oh, uh, not at all. Um, where's, is there a link here or should I... You just type it in or I can copy and paste it for you. Okay. Can do. It is uh, a little unorthodox. Yeah. Um, do you mind clicking it though, so we're seeing it on the screen? Oh, okay. Not at all. Uh, there we go. Right now we just see go to meeting. There we go. Cool. Oh, there we go. Now we got there. something pretty to look at. Uh, all right. So you do oh, a little okay. bit of everything. Be, um, like a old school illustrator, right? Uh, yeah, actually, that was uh, that was where I, I had my first love of stuff um, from Norman Rockwell to Frank Rosetta. I, I really loved those guys. 
Yeah, and actually, I should say you're like a um, a modern day illustrator because you you've embraced the computer. Oh yeah, yeah. I, um, years ago, actually, when did I start? I think around 2002 is when I um, I started uh, uh, doing uh, computer stuff and CG. I started doing actually uh, 3D stuff at about the same time as I started doing um, regular uh, digital painting. Okay. So right now your clients are um, scientific visualization. Uh, who else is your client? Um, um, I actually have been working with the Zoic quite a bit in uh, Vancouver and uh -huh. LA, um, yeah. which I enjoy. Um, but lots and lots of, of variable folks um, and eat private things, uh, book illustration. Uh, recently, uh, or last year, I guess, uh, I did some kids' book stuff that uh, I, I enjoyed. Uh, I work for gaming companies, um, uh, Powerhouse Gaming, a few others. And, um, yeah. Is it fair to say, say uh, concept? Uh, concept, yeah. Uh, concept, desi uh, concept design stuff. So basically the whole thing, production design, um, character and creature design, uh, you name it. Um, yeah, I, uh, literally, I mean, I do everything from environments to storyboards and, and everything in between. Yeah. I, I actually find that to be, and I got in a discussion with, with some folks recently. I was uh, visiting uh, Eidos in Montreal, mm -hmm. and uh, we got in a discussion about that. I, I do tend to think that um, uh, specialists um, are missing some areas of overlap. The, basically, the more you know, the more you can put your hands on. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the more you can cover, things move faster. You can actually uh, uh, interact and um, uh, save a lot of time communicating uh, or even translating clumsy communication by knowing enough to put hands on and make corrections without having to describe a correction for you guys in, have it come back, back and forth. So over the years, I've, I've basically tried to learn anything and everything I could. And I, I have a boredom problem. I, if I do the same thing too often, I get really um, <laughs> seriously bored. So the more my projects change and the more challenge I get, the more I love it. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I've um, I've started and stopped uh, several businesses just out of being bored with processes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, but, it it actually is a difficult thing chasing it, chasing uh, uh, not being not getting bored. Yeah, it is. And but there's something that because uh, when I look at this your work, uh, you have an incredibly strong foundation. And I wonder if that is part of what helps you kind of check all the other stuff out and um, and move it, through it. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, and it's it's a thing when I've done uh, corporate training and stuff like that. That is one of the things I've actually adapted like a 12 week course to uh, when I've come into companies and studios to work mm -hmm. with them along those lines. That is the the large weakness that I find is that um, the mm -hmm. foundational things, the, even even the language of foundational things is very squishy. And uh, um, just trying to get a, a dialogue, like 
uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll come in and like give over a uh, an anatomy of light, basically, just saying these are the components of light. If your picture isn't looking right, you might want to check if one of these eight major elements is missing, or it's not mm. balanced right, or you didn't trade that. out right, you know. Yeah. So, um, but the, and it's it it does simplify. It makes the learning curve a lot faster without like um, a term I've I've heard quite a bit, and I've been challenging people on is uh, I'll hear things about. Um, uh, value structures okay and when i've tried to pinpoint what people mean it's like what what do you mean in your value structure are we talking about um are we talking about scale uh, grayscale or basically a you know a black to white value are uh -huh. we talking about like a, a munsell style value uh -huh. and it's usually they there isn't an idea of what's going on they've just heard the term value and scale makes it sound kind of scientific you know a value scale or value a value structure scale and it's like no nah, uh, it's a spectrum we need to we need to yes we need to boil this down to things that you can demonstrate with your pencil you know at least you know mm -hmm. you know and as soon as you you get to the point where it's like well what simple things are we talking about these these 10 simple things will cascade into infinities uh, if you do them right but what are they at the base? What are, what are the hands-on tools? And that that base set of principles, um, it's it's largely absent. But I, I don't think it's a super hard thing to train and teach people either. Hmm. Um, when you get into like 3D and um, sculpting, like I, I started sculpting when I was 10 in like plaster of Paris and clay and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed that uh, sculpting helped my drawing, you know, having to manipulate and touch and see at different angles an object you're making. And then, you know, immediately after going to draw, it does enhance your capability of thinking dimensionally. Mm -hmm. So like when um, one of the things I like teach because I when I, I get into studios, I hear quite a bit about um, uh, 2D versus 3D, and I'm like, there's no, <laughs> there's, there's no thing there. 2D is 3D, and they mix and match, and you know, the question is, what are you trying to see, mm -hmm. not how are we trying to maintain this, these set of categories. So yeah, yeah like yeah, the old I, masters I that, um, would actually sculpt yeah. <laughs> stuff. Yep. And then draw yes. from the sculpt so they could interpret, you know. So yeah, that's a great. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, there's, there's kind of a thing I notice, and I've noticed it more in um, in game studios than I have in in film stuff. Mm -hmm. um, is uh, there is a a very tribal, um, I'll even say fanboyism around different uh, specialties and software and stuff that mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I think really um, uh, inhibits. Uh, all kinds of production it's like there mm -hmm. i know guys who are very i only do 3d or i don't want to do 3d i only do this type of drawing it's like oh, okay <laughs> you're hobbling yourself because it's it's just tools and mm. if you can create imagery the whole point of what we do is not to adhere to a toolkit it's to make the extraordinary experience is to create these uh, visual wonders, this an experience where people are are somewhat knocked off balance by 
uh, seeing a, a hyper real or impossible thing. How we get there, that's not really the audience's concern. It's not really the, uh, the there, there shouldn't be specialty around it. It should just be as elegant as possible. So you're not wasting tons of time on it and it should be thorough. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like um, if 3D can get you there, 3D is not an, it's, it should be very prestigious because it's not an easy thing to learn. You can come up with beautiful, effective things. Go ahead and use it. You know, <laughs> go yeah. ahead and learn that too. It, it, it takes just a, like I started ZBrush when in ZBrush 2, and uh, the learning curve was pretty easy. It took less than a day to jump in and, and start picking things up. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, the, the point is, is to make stuff not, not, basing your time on whether or not you're using a hammer, you know, not to be a hammer specialist, you know, so that's, that, that could just be me ranting them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Huh. So, yeah. I want to unpack a couple things there. Cause I, um, so when I look at this work and I think a lot of people, when they mm-hmm. are, um, they're at the beginning of the journey and they're thinking about all the stuff that they've got to learn. I totally get the fanboy mm-hmm. and the software uh, fixation. Um, but if I was looking at your work right here and I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. I was just starting this out, I'd look at some of this stuff and the anatomy and the form and I'd be like, this is a black box, man. I mean, I have no idea how you're doing that. And and here you are telling me like it's just a couple of principles and it's super easy. But then if I go and um, yeah. like when I was younger, because when I first started uh realism almost didn't like it didn't exist it only existed in the in the fantasy illustrator world um i had to go to the pennsylvania academy Mm -hmm. of fine arts on the east coast just to learn how to draw decent you know and um yeah yeah and back then there was like there was a new york there was a grad school in new york right and that was the one Mm -hmm. place teaching realism and then outside of that it was ateliers and so i had no idea how to do this and and like i'm looking at this Mm -hmm. skull and and I'm looking at this work and I'm like, there's so much knowledge here. So how do we distill this down into a couple of simple tools, a couple of simple ideas? Because mm-hmm. it looks like it's, you know, five years of, of slave labor to understand something. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think, and, and actually I, I, a friend of mine and I started in the atelier at one point. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it, it was we ran into a couple of things and, and I teach sporadically because, because of the a thing you're, you're kind of describing here, which is there is, um, there's a lot that people come into with it. A lot of, a lot of baggage, um, thinking and expecting what it's going to take to do these, to do drawings and whatnot. And, uh, it does take a lot. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a, a big endeavor. Um, but at the same time, um, the preconceptions that you come, come in with, like um, thinking of realism like it's going to be difficult, it's, it, it, it has its own anxieties and stress that take mental power, basically, that take up, that mm-hmm. take up the time and, and energy needed to just go, okay, 
this guy did it. Like sometimes I'll mention this to people when I'm when I'm teaching. I'm like, look at me. If if I can do this, how difficult do you think this is? <laughs> it's like I, I didn't actually start driving till I was 43. So you know, I, I don't know how to swim. Uh, you know, it's like so. You know, it's like <laughs> you got to gauge the art. You know, it's like the the end result seems impressive, and mm -hmm. hopefully it is. Hopefully I do what I'm doing thoroughly. And I've captured it. But the the steps I've gotten there, and sometimes I like to paint over demos just to, as like a magic trick. Because I know at a certain part when you're watching that, your brain is going to transition from seeing squiggly, um, basically, uh, uh, squiggly measures mm -hmm. to understanding meaning in it. And I know there's a snap and like when I show people demos, I like to watch their faces because you can read when the snap happens, when it from a quantitative to qualitative, it passes that threshold mm -hmm. and they, they look and they go, oh, now it looks like something. So part of it is part of that sense of reality is actually what the audience has to build. You have to put down enough building blocks for them to help you finish the picture. Mm -hmm. So what I when when people come in and they have the preconception of realism, I like to show them some very simple tests to show how quickly we throw agency into a drawing, how or any type of visual, mm -hmm. how quickly we endow it with meaning and what those simple curve lines, corners and intersections, how quickly we can capture somebody. Mm -hmm. Once once you show the simple parts, once you say, look at how simple this is, then you can start to basically say, hey, there are six parts to this. There are eight parts to this and start giving them tools that they can incrementally very quickly, but still incrementally pick up and go, oh, OK, it's this. Oh, it's just that. Um, you know, that's, of course, the easy part. That's the starting out part um, when it right. comes to actually jumping into the cognitive toolkit where you're storytelling and building emotions and subtle, subtle ties that you aren't even aware that you're seeing or feeling until later point, the intuitive parts. That's where it starts to get very complicated. Mm -hmm. But the, the initial building blocks for a beginning student, I think, is they're coming into it with mysticism and superstition. They're, they're imagining a high quality end product that they can't imagine how it got there. Mm -hmm. Simple discussions and simple experiments though can show you that, hey, look, it's, it's just these things. You know, don't worry, don't feel anxiety, take a breath. Just make your mistakes because you can't avoid them. Learn these weird things that you didn't expect were real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And actually, the, the thing I found most interesting about working with students and um, dealing with um, the preconceptions is, is when I tell people that there's going to be a point if they spend enough time learning how to draw or sculpt or whatnot, where they're not going to be able to look at the world the same again. They're going to disconnect from the, the common way of perceiving. And then, and it, it seems like I'm telling them that they're going to get a superpower and they, they find it very doubtful mm. until it hits. And then I'll hear things like, 
I couldn't stop looking at this guy's ear and I'm like, Oh, sorry. <laughs> now you're broken. You can't turn back now. That door will never close again. You know, <laughs> you know? so it's like that, that, but they're, they're usually very excited when they, when they reach that point, they go, Oh, the, everything is, is so different. It's like, yes, every, the way you read people, the way you look at things, everything changes once, once you make that threshold, hmm. which is, um, uh, I think is, is one of the exciting points. You do actually get to change how you, how you get to live in a different world once you, you jump into that. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a, an encouraging point. I think when, when talking to young artists about this and when they, they fear this stuff, it's like, no, within about 12 weeks, you can really mess up how you see the world. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so we overthink this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we overthink in the wrong sequence. I, I think ah. we overthink uh, at the starting point. I get that. Um, as things start to build in complexity, and like mm -hmm. uh, when I think of it, and a thing I, I like to describe is the types of toolkits involved with art. Okay. And it's like you, you, and I hate I say the word media, but you have your media. You know, you have your pencil and paper for this. Mm -hmm. A simple example. Right. Um, with your pencil and paper, it has some limitations. You know, it's like basically you're building values out of it. And to um, borrow Scott Robertson's phrase on form change equals value change, which I, I love that, mm -hmm. um, the, the simplicity of it. You can use these things to build an image um, by dark and lights, you know, pretty easy. Um, that cascades up into a cognitive toolkit, which is once you've, you've got the ability to make um, uh, coherent values that your brain metabolizes and doesn't question as forms, you know, mm -hmm. as, as things in the world, then you start dipping into the cognitive toolkit, which is uh, projecting agency into entities, um, uh, diving into the hyper real where you uh, over-exaggerate and do impossible things that your brain goes, hey, that's wrong, but it's right. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know um, uh, an example of that I like to bring up is with color that um, pigments are subtractive and light is additive. Um, but you can do things with pigments that light can't do and make it seem like it's something light can do. You know, you can over amplify in your painting something in a way that light can't actually do and give somebody the an experience they can't have in life you know mm -hmm. some extra life an extra dose of of something they wouldn't otherwise have any access to and so that cognitive toolkit that starts to lead into like crazy crazy things um uh you know, uh, one of the things that <clears throat> that I like to to go over when I, I go over art with people is um, uh, the invisibles that you draw, the things that um, are implied. Like sometimes if you're drawing a figure, if you were to talking to animators about this and doing mm -hmm. animations with this, if you set a figure on the shoulders of a character, um, you don't actually like in the end don't show the drawing of them but people move their shoulders as if they've got a small figure whose balance they're having to compensate for 
So it's like if you see somebody who's tired and weary, it's almost like they have another being on their shoulders whose whose behaviors are weighing them down. So if you actually draw a secondary figure, like somebody's giving them a, uh, what is that? It's not piggyback. It's, uh, you know, basically carrying somebody on their shoulders Mm -hmm. and having to deal with that weight, you can give people an emotional sense because of how we theatrically pose for one another, mm-hmm. how we theatrically communicate. Um, so it's like there's these invisible parts of drawing that when you dip into those and you start playing with those, people get the feels. That's you know, that's when they talk about things really seem real to them. And it's like, yeah, there's there's things going on here that don't really have much to do with the the package involving the pencil and the paper anymore. It's more things where it's like, okay, we've used the pencil and paper to dive into your brain and start playing with the tools on how you make realities. And that that starts to get into really complex and um, fairly, and I think it's one of the areas of growth that, that in the future we're going to be dealing with a lot because of VR and other types of immersive uh, interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the toolkit that gets the most neglect, I think. It, it's not the one that's as explored as would be ideal. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, yeah. Because, you know, I find one of the big things that a lot of students have is, you know, we're rushing to achieve stuff and to put it into the portfolio, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to, I got to learn oh. this software. I got to learn that software. I got to learn this software. And then I'm going to skimp on lighting. Mm-hmm. And just get it out there. And then, you know, you miss the whole point. Yeah. Uh, When I've been a hiring manager, um, which it sounds like a horrible term, a hiring manager, (laughs) Um, but but you can see it in, you you can see it in the portfolios where people are trying to get a job, you know, and they're trying to, they, they have basically learned and can say they know a software, for example, or they've mm-hmm. they've taken in uh, a figure study class, and it's like, okay, you're you're checking the boxes, but like I, I when I've done things, I never really bother with that with my portfolio. I do a really unorthodox portfolio. I I overpack it. I do what I want because I'm a grown man and nobody can tell me nothing. Oh wait, I'm, that's not true. Hold on. <laughs> You shouldn't drink this early in the morning, (laughs) but it's basically, it's mine. You know, the portfolio is mine. And if I've, if I have a, a, an evocative set of images, hopefully the, the people who are looking at it can discern what skills and knowledge I have. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you pointed out, like on my website here, I have, uh, I have some rigging, I have some painting. It's like, you just instantly went, oh, here's these things. He knows these. That's good. You know, <laughs> as opposed to force feeding the witness into, hey, I've studied this. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's that's great. Um, can you make awesome images with it? You know, can you can you can you do things that um, will beguile me mm-hmm. in a reasonable period of time? <laughs> you know, so um, so in yeah, I think with, like the the worrying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that that is a, a real thing. Like um, when I've worked in stuff, noodling with artwork, like the again the overthinking and the insecurity of pleasing somebody, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to going, 
I know I'm going to please you. I know I, I've spent a lot of time studying these mechanisms and they're surefire. They can happen every time. I'm not going to worry about whether or not I, I, I do I, talking to young artists and I, I try to uh, give out a lot of free instruction as time allows to young artists because um, I, I think they've gotten a raw deal over the years, you know, <laughs> over you the, know. over the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And um, just, yeah, yeah, uh, just um, walking them through and taking the time to have a conversation with them and um, tell them not to be subservient and teach them how not to be subservient or how to accept, like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of critique. Um, I, uh, I spent a little bit of time studying the roots of critique and like, mm-hmm. trying to track where and why it might be important to art. And I don't see it as that. It started as um, uh, political criticism, basically, uh, and trying to tear a thing down and get to its roots. But that's not, when you do a drawing, you've put something together. The last thing you want is somebody to tear it down to its roots and decide whether or not you've used your brushwork correctly without seeing the end content. Hmm. Um, With a thing with artists, uh, you know, I'll be asked to give them a critique and I don't, I don't. What I do instead is I take their work as if it's my own. I try to invest in it and go, okay, if I were going to do this, um, if I'm going to uh, adopt this person's endeavor, um, what do I see missing? What can I talk to them about that I see missing? Mm -hmm. What do I not understand about it that I need to discuss with them so I'm not compromising their daydream? Yeah. And basically paint it myself, put my hands on the problem. And then either like in procreate, I like to do these in procreate because I just then um, do the video mode and we go over it and what changes I've made. I have to put my hands on. I can't, I can't use talky talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I actually have to put pen to paper and go, okay, let me try out your idea and see and offer suggestions or interact with you and see if any of this is appealing or if you didn't know this, then let's talk about that. And uh, I can refer you to things or maybe here's some exercises that you can try, whatnot. You have to invest and interact as if the person isn't there to be judged, but as if you're helping them with the grand endeavor. You know, we're all in it together, I like to say, because we are. I don't look at uh, art as like a who's the best artist or who's a favorite art. I look at it like it's a relay. And I'm only going to, I only will live long enough to learn so much. And then I better have a pretty decent toolkit to turn over to the next generation and say, hey guys, I took this one incremental step forward, your turn, take what you need from this, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> suck mm-hmm. the marrow from my bones, but uh, keep going. You know, I, I love this endeavor. I don't want it to fail, so I, I want to make sure that that you guys are armed with any tools that I may have found or whatnot, or I may have heard of from some other artist. Mm. So I, I I think that um, uh, that that being generous with with knowledge like that is a super important part to keep art going. Uh, right. I I look at a lot of art in danger. You know, I I worry about it that it's that we're losing the eyes that see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've run into that. Have you have you run into a thing where um, 
people aren't seeing as much of the artwork as they used to, or they aren't seeing facial expressions. They, they can't pick out the subtlety of what a facial expression might mean. Hmm. It's almost like a, a blindness to them. Like if it isn't done in a squash and stretch, extreme cartoon style, it's almost not seen at all. Interesting. And the, that's a that's the thing that's troubling me. It's like uh, I've done my kind of uh, 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 anecdotal experiments with this. Uh, a friend of mine, Bart McCoy, who's also an artist, he and I used to work in a studio together, <laughs> and we would try out these experiments where we'd go, "Which of what do you see here?" You know, basically asking engineers and mathematicians and and things like that. And oftentimes they they couldn't see a difference between the least data-filled package, you know, a smiley face to a very intricately detailed face. They couldn't discern much difference or much variation in expressions or any of the subtle details. And to me, that's worrisome that, um, that they're not seeing an entirety of, of what's been made. They're only seeing a very, um, abbreviated official set hmm. and that that's a, a troubling thing that i've I, I don't, it could just be me being paranoid <laughs> <laughs> well what um along those lines what are some of the other um you know because with new technology and then like you know this artificial intelligence and then there's um you know yeah. the whole deep <laughs> technology and there's actually there's people yeah, yeah. in my industry that are making it so that you take a photo and you actually you don't sculpt faces anymore it's just there, there's your face like you know and yeah. they're going to do it like that's going to happen um yeah. so as we're going into this you know you can you came in with all of this it's really this is quite fascinating because there was this i'm going to ramble mm -hmm. for a sec if you don't mind but there was this um oh, really, please, please okay great there was this uh, really cool uh talk john favreau went to uh, unreal's user group in siggraph i think this year yeah, I think it was this year. And he was talking about how um, it used to be, like just say five years ago, it used to be that the, the, the old guys, the guys who knew what a camera lens actually did and were looking for that, that very particular way of focusing and, and um, the way it looked and they knew exactly what they wanted. It used to be those guys were relegated to the back while all these tech people were, you know, basically putting all these numbers in and typing them into Maya and sending them off to render man and all that stuff. But now with unreal, they're actually building virtual tools so that these old guys, you know, put the stuff on and they're like, well, this is the lens I want. Um, and so then unreal goes, grabs the lens, they codify the lens and the entire behavior. Next thing you know, in virtual reality, they got all these editing tools and it's like all that old knowledge isn't disappearing. Mm -hmm. it's coming forward yeah. now, right? Like we went through this hump of, yeah. we were close to losing a lot of these, a lot of these old, uh, you know, eighties and some of these guys that, you know, with all this knowledge, we were close to losing, you know, but now we're not, we're getting it. So what do you think we're close to mm -hmm. losing now in the illustration game in the, in, in this, in this game? Um, I think, I think there's a few things, um, like going back to, uh, AI and deep fakes and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I think there's a, a thing that um, 
I, I find I find interesting. Um, people don't humans don't see things right off. It takes a long time. What they do is they project an image. Like you have way more connections projecting old data from the back of your brain to the front of your visual system, <laughs> from to the mm. front of your brain, mm -hmm. than you do the new intake. You take in about 5% of new information per vision, as opposed to 90% projected, and the other 5% is a throwaway. Okay. <laughs> so, you're, when people see things, like when I first saw deep fake, for example, I went, wow. And then I, a couple of days later, I saw it again. And I went, oh, that's terrible. You know? <laughs> and the, it's, I, I call it the uh, Pixar effect. Mm -hmm. Because if you see the first Toy Story, or you saw it years ago, and then you see the most recent Toy Story, you'll tend to take and project backward the best of and the quality of the new one because it has enough conventions, enough things to rewrite your memory. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and look at the original, you go, oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. that's, that is so terrible. So it's like right now, because of the novelty of, of deep fakes and whatnot, when we look at it, we are providing the best of the information that the deep fakes offer. As soon as we get a little used to it, we go, oh, I can see right through that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think of like Ray, Ray Harryhausen's special effects that when I was a little mm -hmm. kid, I loved. But Thank I you. look at now and I go, oh, that is choppy. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> this is making my eyes jitter. You know, <laughs> you know so I, I, think, I think it's got a lot of PR and a lot of branding, and it may even have lots of potential. But what we're seeing in it now is we're looking in a mirror. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're looking at our own brains, fixing it at a first pass. Because very soon we're going to look at it and go, hmm. I mean, like that. I've seen a bunch of Steve Buscemi on people, <laughs> you know, on like Lady Gaga and Jennifer Lawrence and stuff. Oh and it's God, like, that's got to be a treat. You know, at first, it, it, <laughs> it's fantastic. I spend hours watching it on the loop. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I swear I'm joking. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but when, when I saw it the first time, I'm like, oh, and then seriously, the second time I'm like, oh, the face is off angle. And it, it, as far as like being able to interpret it, you really are very forgiving the first passes. Mm. Uh, I've seen some of the... Um, I saw a thing, there's a program out where you can just draw some shapes and AI will help make a landscape for you. Yes. You know? And it, that's a lot of pareidolia. I mean, like when you, like when I've taught art classes around that, I'm, I basically say, here's a big brush. You know, I, I uh, take the William Whitaker philosophy, which is find the largest brush you can. And when you find it, throw it away and get one bigger. <laughs> and then start making random strokes, take a step back, look at it, start using your pareidolia, your brain's own pattern recognition materials, and pick out what you want to do. You know, uh, you know, you, your brain will lead you to it. What mm. the AI stuff is doing, it's just you, instead of taking that five-second brush pass, you're taking a five second push some buttons pass. You know? mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it works fine. I, I'd recommend everybody use that if they want to, but it doesn't, it isn't doing anything that we don't have an equal tool for, or, and you'd probably want to use 
that tool anyway, you'd probably want to use the big brush and alter it anyway, because on its own, again, we're being forgiving with it. You see it after like two days, you go, wow, that is a really sloppy mess. That's just a bunch of noise in mm. shapes that I made. Oh, fair enough. You know, <laughs> so with things like that, I, I think we're we're looking at it with very forgiving eyes because we like the novelty of it, but it will it will not be as pretty the more we get used to it, the more it's, it's common. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the other things, like some of the things we've lost, and it's one of the big things, like um, I, I talked to folks at the frame store a few months ago talking about um, um, there, there's a thing being noticed, and I've, I've talked to a few different folks around this, that like um, the program Ziva and tissue and things like that, these muscle building things, they don't look right all the time. There's something, mm-hmm. and it, it's pretty, for me, the it stands out like a sore thumb. That's not, to, not saying, well, for me, because I'm awesome. Did my hair all pretty? I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> you know? um, but when I look at it, like I've been studying anatomy since I was eight, and I, I see you've got the Paul Richard book behind you there, which oh, is yeah. one of the first I ones this. I had as a kid. I love that thing. Also, that Bernini book, I love that thing too. <laughs> but I, I, I started, right yeah, my, my mom's an artist, and she mm-hmm. had the art books around, and I had the anatomy books around. and. Uh, I liked superheroes as a kid, so I wanted to learn muscle. So I started at about eight, mm-hmm. and now I'm super old. So anatomy stands out to me like a sore thumb. So when I see the the program, the stuff that's basically engineered to be, to be physically accurate, right? Brains don't read physical accuracy. What they read is exaggeration. There's actually a lot of this has to do with eye movements, the saccades, smooth pursuit, vergence, and how we understand Mm -hmm. importance. Mm -hmm. A a big thing I've been teaching over the last couple of years is the motion of your eyes, eye movements, are basically a cognitive gear shift. And you learn, and it's a sense all its own. Um, A a lot of the stuff I've been teaching lately is uh, uh, like the uh, Kiki Booba effect. Or sometimes it's called Maluma Antikete. It shows, so what it is, it's a couple of figures. I wish I had it. Um, Because it's a fantastic effect. It shows you how quickly you understand and recognize recognize little things. I don't know if you can check it on your uh, your computer there. I fear messing around with our screen here. (laughs) Um, But it's... um, it's two figures and you ask some questions around it and how quickly people understand agency, pre-conscious cues, how they put, like, um, uh, uh, do you have it pulled up? Yeah, I'll get, you, uh, I'll get you a link. I'll just post a link okay. right there. So that's the Wikipedia. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, okay. and that's where you actually imbue so, anything with like anamorphic properties, right? Or um, well, it's uh, not ex- it sort of. It has to do with brain maps. Okay. Um, it, it, your brain maps. So through. how your the way your body. Um, can you see those? Okay. Yeah. Oops, I'm an idiot. 
Okay. <laughs> the way the way your brain understands space is it uses your body as a measuring stick. Yeah. Uh, okay. For depth and other things along those lines. You have cortical maps. You have maps of your body on the surface of your brain. So uh, uh, you've probably heard of uh, phantom limbs, and um, the reason we have phantom limbs is that when you lose a limb, your brain does not lose the map of that limb uh, on your brain. It still has, it still expects to get measuring out of it. It still expects inputs um, from your uh, somatosensory system, from your mechanosensory system. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's, there's all these navigational systems and motion sensors that we have in our bodies. And we, when we look at other people or other things, we measure them. The arc, the degrees of arc that our eye move across a person, we read back and measure it against our own bodies. So there's a thing called the uh, Botox effect. And the Botox effect is, um, uh, what they found is that when you, when somebody who's had Botox are given photographs of different pe of people making different emotions, they have a difficult time understanding the emotions because what happens is, is you see something, your eye is shifting around and getting measures, which is basically what seeing is. Um, not, not just the data from uh, photons and the electrochemical uh, bio, you know, all of these things going on. Um, you also, the movement of your eyes is a pattern. You have a face expertise of pattern that you make. And if you look at psychotic motion, the way that eyes move around a face, it's pretty patterned. Um, when they do this because their eyebrows are paralyzed, mm -hmm. uh, their brain sends out a ping to these um, receptors in your muscles and in your fascia. And these, the, these receptors, actually, they, they aren't just like a data source. They actually, your psychology is also affected by how your uh, fascia moves. They're making all these new discoveries right now about uh, um, the spindles in your fascia that tell you balance, but they also give other environmental information. So like, if you think about it, you have all these senses like pressure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you have special cells, Ruffini cells for heat and pressure and all these things. So when, if you have Botox and this is paralyzed and you look at somebody and they're frowning, your brain sees that, tries to make the pattern send it back to your own muscles and it goes, oh, we don't have that one. Wonder what that means. I don't know. Now in real life, people who, you know, not looking at photos, people don't have a large problem discerning because we have all these extra cues, vocal cues and cadences and so on and so forth. But um, with the, uh, the Botox effect, it shows that we are trying on and wearing other people for a second. You know, mm. theory of mind is based on our eye movements around things. Mm -hmm. We can, drawing and stuff, we can mess with that. Like, um, and I mentioned your Bernini book back there. Bernini is one of the first guys who was, like was trying to codify and mention this by saying, hey, we don't see in precision, and the Mannerists did also, we don't see in precision, we see in exaggeration. Mm. So like being able to 
you so far, I would say you have to be a human in order to make human style storytelling exaggeration and emphasis. Um, to give the feels, you have to be able to be a person who's already building those feels yourself. You're trying things on. Now, I'm going to jump back to that Kiki Booba thing because I want to show you some interesting stuff with it. Yeah. Uh, can you can you see it on the screen? Okay. Yep. I see the two figures. Okay. So, so so one of them is called Kiki and one of them is called Booba. Uh, which is which? Oh. Uh, Kiki is on the left. Uh oh, I'm stuck. Boobo, Boobo on the right. Okay. One of them is spicy and one of them is sweet. Uh, spicy is left. Okay. One of them is male, one of them is female. Uh oh. Uh oh, I feel like this is going to reveal a it's little bit about no my right psychology answer. here. <laughs> It, 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 it actually isn't. It isn't about your psychology, and I'll explain why. You, you have to know my wife, actually. She's a little, you know, hardcore. <laughs> so I'm going to say on the That's all right. I'm going to say on the I, left, I, but I'm sorry, Sonia. All right? He made me say it. <laughs> okay. Um, one of them is old. One of them is young. Uh, old is on the right. Okay. I'm 50-50. So, I don't know, but yeah. Okay, so those are, and there isn't right answers to those, but they do tell you like, um, one of the things like men almost, I think it's 98% of the time have Kiki as the pointy one and uh, women as the round bubbly one. Women don't have that same average and there's reasons for it. Part of it has to do with um, women don't, women have extra depth perception. And it's really weird and interesting. So um, the reason you know this is because you have neurons that are cross-modal. Okay, we don't actually have, you know, we don't have the five senses, though that's kind of an old, that we have apertures. We have five sense receptors that we can easily point out, but we have tons of others too. Okay, so when you're, when you're looking at something, you're not actually, it isn't the data you're pulling in from your eyes. It's all over the place. Some of it's uh, sound. Um, so if you, that you know one is Kiki and one is Booba is because there's a neuron that is a sound sight neuron that understands both things. So whenever you're doing a drawing, whenever you do a sculpture or a visual thing, you're also making sound attachments. There's even a, a type of synesthesia that they found where mm. you can make a thing look like it's impacting Mm -hmm. And people will hear an impact, even if you don't have an impact. So it's a it's a pretty crazy, impressive thing. Mm -hmm. But um, the re Kiki Booba is important because, especially for artists, because it shows how quickly and pre-conscious your brain is projecting agency into entities. Okay, um, that you're able to recognize one as male and female. Um, it, it isn't super important which one you recognize. It's that you can recognize. Yeah. And you've studied anatomy. You, you, you know, like I, I show this in when I, when I'm studying anatomy, I'll show Kiki and Booba and I'll say, okay, so what we recognize the largely, the majority of people recognize Booba as the bubbly one, as the female. Mm -hmm. Why? 
And the reason is a real and explicit reason having to do with fat pads. It's because women have a larger, in fact, what makes femininity look like femininity is fat pads. Um, men don't have the fat pads dispersed in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, with the fat pads comes the same spindles and extra receptors. And um, even, and I hate to mention it, but you know, I, I don't want to make everybody feel awkward, but part um, uh, has to do with breasts and projecting into Z space. Um, whenever, what I recommend to artists when I'm teaching them is one, like when doing anatomy, I'll go, who, men, if you draw a manly man, a muscular man, he's way more bubbly. When you draw a woman, their limbs tend to be much straighter. You know, there, there's linearity there. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they more kiki? When asking the women who recognize, uh, keep the pointy one as female, they often mention motion. They mention going through space, running, walking, not, you know, activities. Okay. Mm -hmm. Basically depth cues. Um, women I've noticed, and I, whenever I do any piece of artwork, I try to make, I try to imagine a woman is the audience because they have the bigger data set. Men tend to be a little more blunt and silhouette -y. Whereas women have a better data set socially, they interact face on and depth cues there. And because there seems to be an indicator that how they're navigating space has a better depth cue also. Hmm. So knowing they're going to likely be the harder judge, <laughs> they're going to, they have the, the, they also like women aren't as often colorblind. They have better color sense you know so it's like i i, I want to aim at the judge who's got the biggest toolkit to deal with so i always mention if you want a thorough drawing make sure you're making this so that women can see it in every dimension don't let things be not thorough according to depth understanding depth perception right. color yeah. perceptions and all these things i also try to like with portraits for example um because of all these subtle cues and the impossible things, I sometimes like to try to make people say things with paintings. Um, so I'll do things like take color signatures and depth color signatures. So the form change equals value change is awesome. But there's also a different one that has to do with depth change equals importance change. So if you think of a tiger far away, it's mm -hmm. not as important as a tiger right here. Okay. Right. We tend to allow things that are familiar here, but we also things that we don't want menace when they get closer. in. So depth for humans equals a type of importance. There's a certain point where we disregard and a certain point where it's hyper important. Um, so I'll do things like when I do a portrait, I try to make it and I'll use uh, anamorphic distortion to try to make you a friend of the person in the picture, for example, you know, so I'll, I'll make their heads, you know, so that you're looking at it. I'll try to do detail in such a way that you close in and focus in so that you're at an ideal friend distance. Mm. But then I also have to make the limbs so that when talking to a friend, your psychotic motion is confabulating a, a set of proportions so that you get a sense of your friend in space at that distance. 
when you stand about 10 feet away, it looks ridiculous. It looks like their arms are 10 feet long, but you know, <laughs> but you have to sacrifice a little bit, you know. Um, so uh, with some of these are some of the things that I think are missing in a lot of this, like um, mm -hmm. translucence and skin. I did a portrait of a lady. Um, she's a very nice lady, very, uh, like when you meet her, you kind of accidentally just say she's sweet. She's very sweet natured, very, very kind demeanor. Um, when I did her portrait, I actually gave her skin the um, translucency of a ripe peach. And, you know, because our eyes can read sugar potency, the refraction of sugar potency through a substance, you know, how light is transmitting through a thing. So I, I sweetened her up visually because <laughs> I know that the Kiki Booba thing is, is in effect. We have these cross modal things so that light vibrantly passing through sugary sugary refraction will do something different than water <laughs> you know this so is part it's like the... i gave her that and yeah as you say this is the cognitive toolkit you're talking about that yes. people miss yes. right people focus <laughs> yes. on the media which is is anatomy media or is anatomy cognitive um anatomy is both um okay. because um and it, it breaks down to different things. Like we read anatomy fairly well without knowing anatomy. You know, it's like oh, yeah. because we're we're trying people. That's where people talk about the fields and the uncanny valley and all that stuff. It's because uh -huh. we're not reading right. You know, and when when I talk to the folks at um, about Ziva and the the missing parts of the physically accurate muscle systems we don't read physically accurate. We read emphatic. We read emphasis, you know, <laughs> when, you know, people talk about their crooked faces, you know, how your face is every, you know, it, symmetry is the basis of beauty, total nonsense, absolute oh. nonsense. We don't see things that are like that, especially faces. Our eyes travel around over time. Um, one of the things I like to do and show with saccades when you do a portrait, you don't do a portrait, a static portrait of a second in time. You do it over many seconds because an eye acts as an animator. An eye acts because yeah. what, what happens your saccades when your eye jumps, it actually shuts off data. So going from point A to point B, your eye, that middle point is in it, you're blind to it. So every day you're blind for about four hours a day when all these things are accumulated. Okay, so when you look at anatomy, if you look at a shoulder, which is this big bulb, and then you look at an elbow, which is the next one, your brain shuts off the middle part of the arm. It picks up enough central information to read the trajectory of the line. So like in a drawing, if you draw a shoulder and then you draw extra length to the elbow, your brain reads that as time. It reads it as a time distortion, as if the arm has moved and you're trying to land on where it is next. So you can alter people's sense of time using anatomy. You can distort anatomy hugely. People don't notice the difference and it gives, it starts to give the feels of a time happening. People don't notice it, but they fall for it. You know? in, in fact, it makes it seem extra real it makes it seem like it's more convincing because you're actually doing something your brain wants to do 
with people. It knows it doesn't know people static. It knows people wiggling around. So if you right. give them that wiggle around, they jump right. They go, yeah, that's right. You know. So with like the Ziva thing and whatnot, I mentioned to them that like um, if you have it so that sculpt by sculpt, you know, basically statue to statue as the keyframes. Um, with exaggerated biceps and whatnot, that's what people will notice. They don't notice a regular bicep. They'll understand strain by the exaggerations you put in, which is, again, that Bernini thing. It's you have to make things to how people see, not whether they're physically accurate. So, and with, with AI and a lot of these things, I think the dependency is based on a misconception of trying to understand a physical objective fact while we've got these very distorting brains we have a pattern recognizer that just goes i gotta emphasize this because it's important i got you know i've got a it's just trying to deal with an average out information it's not it's not keying into precision you know it does pretty good but it's it's clumsy and yeah. if we know the clumsiness we can dive forward okay man that is amazing there's actually two things i wanted to grab out of that and um so you mentioned earlier about yeah. how you know, artists really have gotten kind of a raw deal. And one of the things mm. that um, that I've hit on, and I don't know if this is kind of along the lines of what you're thinking or not, but artists, especially when we're, we're training and we're training to be good at something so that it'll qualify us for a job, you know, we have all these mm. targets lined up and we're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. And this, this happened, this, it happens every every class I have with my, my students, but one of them very specifically with uh, a student named Travis. And uh, Travis said he'd hit all of the bells and whistles. It's like he modeled, he textured, he lit it, but, but it was still wasn't hitting the target, right? And it's kind of like he had gone through his checklist. And so if HR was looking at this, they'd be like, yeah, he lights, yeah, he models, yeah, he textures, yeah, he does that. And so we had to stop and we had to be say like, yeah, you hit all your checklists, but it's not working. Why is it not working? Well, it's not working because there's no story. There's no, there's nothing to imbue any meaning, no empathy. I'm totally disconnected from this scene. And so he went and he spent one week and he threw a shadow. He basically lit there was this hallway, this alleyway that was kind of hidden. And he, he put a light back there, put a shadow back there, and he made that the center part. And then the light moved out and hit a couple more elements from there. But now suddenly it was like in a week, it was like, here you got a, a guy. It's like, okay, I get it to, to something where it's like, holy crap, like I, I'm in this. Mm -hmm. I feel this. And so the thing that hits me there is that as artists we're like we're always trying to hit these targets but you're only really like an artist when you stop and you just focus on just i don't know even know what it is does this does this line make sense um, it does but there's a there's a couple of things that um i might be an obnoxious person so i'm not i wouldn't recommend people take my advice on but I, I have a thing, um, and working in game studios, this amplified quite a bit. Um, game studios can be rough environments. They can be pretty toxic. And in a number of them, they can be anti-art, which is a surprising thing. They can actually treat artists like second-class citizens, which is, you know, art, art is not necessarily seen as a highly technical 
profound. It's taken us 500,000 years to get here. Um, probably one of the fundamentals of how the mind works as we understand it. It's not that, it's just doodads and make pretty. You know, so it's like, I actually don't, you know, that checkbox of what they want. I don't care what they want, to be honest with you. Um, they they bring us in because we're experts in our field and we have a certain set of superpowers that is highly valuable. I was I was calculating how much I've contributed to working in the game industry. Um, me and my departments or hundreds of millions, billions to projects. One I know of that was 500 million all by itself, largely driven by art. One of them, the engineering and game design and whatnot, it was gaffed because the thing was broken when we showed it and the game broke records when it was released. So I tend to think that artists are being unnecessarily subservient for their highly extraordinarily valuable skills. Mm. Um, there is a thing, and I, I do think it's important, like there is a, a delusional state of being a young artist, and I don't want to sound condescending or jerky, <laughs> but it's there, there is a state where you're, you have built some craftsmanship and your eyes are again being super forgiving because it's novel and there's new terrain and you feel good about you you know you're basically you're into your superpowers they're just you're trying to hone them um that does need some it needs to be chastised by life a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it, it does need a little bit of reining in and going hey you're good that's awesome there's still a many miles to go relax enjoy what you do don't get caught up in your tools get caught up in what you're making and and how awesome that may be yeah. you know so um there's there are things there but i think the way that like i notice an obsession with trying to get a portfolio um and it's like okay portfolios are good they show your work they show what you're capable of but I've noticed there's like the way they're recklessly dealt with, you know, I've been in studios where, and I, I just, I hate to say this and sound terrible about it, but it's kind of a fact of, of some of these studios, you know, I can't speak to all of it. People are fairly cruel about looking over a portfolio in private. They actually try to tear it apart socially, not based on criteria. They, they look at them and they it becomes a game of who can make the most jokes about and about your images, how they can tear your work down. I've seen artists look through other artists' portfolio and make fun of work they could not do in their wildest dreams, and that person would be vetoed. You know, so it's, there's real adversarial bad behavior in getting to judge people's work, um, which is why I, I try to take that out of people's hands. It's like, I, I, when I make a portfolio, I make the work that I feel good about, whether or not it meets the needs of said place or not. Mm -hmm. I know that nine times out of 10, when I've tried to get jobs or whatnot, um, that when people look at your work, they're seeing what they wanna see. And they also question what they, the people feel threatened. I, I was um, interviewing at a studio several years ago 
And in the middle of the interview, one of the guys says, so are you trying to take my job? Well, uh, I, I don't think so. <laughs> are you bad at it? Maybe I am. Tell me more. You know, it's like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, it's like they're, and, and that's not, that's not isolated. I've worked in all kinds of studios where people weren't, well, if this guy comes in, how do we know he's not going to just try to show us all up? It's like, wouldn't it be awesome if somebody came in and showed us all up and then we could learn from him and improve? I don't want to be dumber any longer than I have to be. If that guy's more awesome, let's bring him in, you know, but mm. that, that isn't a thing that happens all that much. So it's like trying to, I think the main key that everyone should try to do a portfolio is just featuring your awesome work. You have to make the awesome work and awesome work depends on making things that are cool, world building, doing crazy stories, being as imaginative as you can be, not trying to check boxes. Um, you know, it's like every drawing I try to do, I try to start daydreaming right away, making the stories happen. You know, uh, not um, not worry about whether I got to do a person. I got to make sure that they see that I can do a person. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with a guy and he's a really nice guy and he I know he was trying super hard for years to to craft and build his skills and he asked me to critique some drawings he did and I was like sure I said I don't critique but let's go through <laughs> we'll look at him and I'll, I'll tell you what I see and you let me know and it was superheroes and it was superheroes all distant and again, I was, I have that thing about um, depth change equals importance change. Mm -hmm. And all the superheroes were far away. And I asked him, I said, why, um, why do you have them so distant? I said, if, you know, when you meet somebody magnificent, you know, or intimidating, you're usually shorter. So your perspective, you'd want to aim them up. You know, you'd want to give the sense of somebody bigger, grander, and all those exaggerations. I said, so why, why do you have them far away? And he goes, well, I wanted to show that I knew how to draw feet. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I'm just the audience. I'm just the viewer. I'm not going to, I just want to see a story. I don't want to, I'm just here for that. I'm not here to, yeah, I'm not here to tear you down whether or not the feet look 100%, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I just, I just like a story, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a thing I started to notice and follow up with that, that people are building product. You know, they are building, they're making drawings of drawings. They're making drawings based on preset items and commercial items that they are DIYing. You know? And it's like, no, don't do that. Build worlds, build worlds. That's what artists do. Looking as far back in history as possible, we build, the Greeks called it the extraordinary experience. And that's what we make. We do something extraordinary. You know, rituals, the word ritual has the same root as the word art does. And, you know, it's like, uh, there's also the thing about, um, I find that there's an anti-science aspect to art, that it's cold, it's mathematical. The Greek word arithmos, like arithmetic, art is the same root word as the word art. It means number. Art and math used to be one. Um, a techni is the, a, a Greek word for art. And technology, art, you know, I, art, I've bickered with art, artists about this. We aren't very technical. 
you by definition are technical that's why they call it state of the art you know mm. it's like because art is not that is not an eccentric crazy poet off in the corner you know it's art is one of the literally one of the most extraordinary things that humans have ever done now the the archaeology for art going back to i think the earliest now goes to a a Homo erectus or Homo ergaster cave in Java going back 500,000 years um, to before we weren't even our type of human. Our brains are only 75% the volume that they are now. And we've been doing this forever. This is, you know, there's been near extinction events where we've maintained and perpetrated art because it's part of our evolutionary toolkit. It's not a small matter. It's not a a tiny frivolous endeavor it's part of the thing that keeps us alive it's part of the thing that allows us to have intellect um human sociality uh, when i've when i've worked in the science stuff that it's fantastic i i would recommend everybody go work with scientists because <laughs> they're awesome physicists and mathematicians and um they're very eager about art and when you start discussing with them the possibilities of it um, I, I did a little work with the um, uh, cancer lab at um, Mass General in Boston. And the way they were looking at slides, uh, the way they were, you know, looking at cancer slides and whatnot, they were still doing it visually. They were still doing it by right. um, eye. And usually they try to develop these gestalt principles of picking out these things. And it's like, Okay, well, you have Photoshop, right? And when we went down and I said, you can, there, the slides are dyed versions of skin. Just by looking at it, coming into it like an artist, I was able to contribute in the strangest ways, you know, in ways that it was like, oh, this is helpful. This is something that is. And it's like, um, I, I don't think artists should come in with their hat in their hands to anything. You know, I think we should come in and like, when we show a portfolio, and I recommend this to every artist I know, when you send in your portfolio to a company and an art director's looking at it, demand to see that art director's portfolio too. Know who's judging you and whether or not they're admirable and you would trust their judgment. You know, um, you are the only guardian and hero of your work. So, hmm. um, you know, treat it well, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and also never take that second seat, never be looked at as if you're a small person because you do a fruity poetic thing. It's like, no, 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 no. This is fundamental to everything. Humans can't escape this. You know, this is, this is part of our package. This is, this is our thing. So like worrying about portfolios or worrying about trying to hit the marks, the only mark I try to hit is if my audience and I are linking up in the same story, is if I've provided them enough and their reactions are such that they're like, whoa, that's crazy. It's like, all right, I'm good. We did it. And we did it together, me and the audience. So trying to hit those marks, I think, is, is a side effect of grades. It's a side effect of schools and, and trying to appease some somebody who's going who you're afraid is going to try to tear you down. Hmm. So I would say it's always better to be your worst critic 
and also your most forgiving critic just go yeah that's terrible but i got my whole life i have to be able to assemble this so that one was bad let's look at what's bad what was good let's move on you know because <laughs> yeah i, I want to actually leads to the next i want to jump in there because what when i heard like i don't critique um but then when you got in and you spoke about it i thought you might be connecting with something that that uh, i try to do with my students which is to train them how do i say it to train their inner critic because the inner mm -hmm. critic's always there um but a lot of times we offload this to other people and like or maybe there's a mentor that just was like a real douche and like stuck in your brain and now he's forever your inner critic right <laughs> And so I try to get them to train their inner critic. Like, I love what you said, where you got to be your worst yes. critic, but you got to be your most supportive because you're the only hero. You're your only hero, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a true thing because it's like, and I, I've, when I hear from the younger artists who I, I interact with, mm -hmm. that's, they do mention that guy. They, everybody <laughs> has one. Like I, I, I'm, I'm self-taught and I grew up in, my mom's an artist and I grew up in the household. So I didn't really have a, a moron hanging over me to be mean or who was, whose prestige was based on whether or not they could know better than their students. What type of thing is that? Of course, they're your students. They're here to learn. You, you know, petty dictators over, over people who have just come in basically kindly trying to learn stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I never had to deal with that. So when I first ran into that kind of thing, I was always like over, maybe overly aggressive with it. Like, hey, back off. I didn't ask you. Or I, when I was in my early 20s, I developed what I call the pencil test, which is when anybody has any commentary to offer about liking, not liking if I did or didn't do something right. Really? Here you go. You can finish off my work. <laughs> Here's a pencil. Show me. Don't tell me. You know, if you can do it, you know, it's like, I, if you finish up this picture, I'll move on to the next one. We'll do a nice collab. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, this is hard work anyway. If you can take it over, that'd be great. Thanks a lot. High five. <laughs> but they can't. They're, they're basically talking as, as armchair quarterbacks and backseat drivers. They're mm -hmm. commandeering because they, they have a, an overdeveloped sense of their own confidence. You know? It's like, uh, and that's, that's a thing that, the guy who did the feat, um, that was his thing. He had a teacher who was complaining about that. And it's like, well, did he walk you through how to do feet? You know, it only takes a few minutes. And then uh, there's a thing I love because the the timeline of learning is is awesome. Um, it takes, I think it was what I read is it takes three to 12 days to build the synapses okay. to create new learning basically. So if you draw something and you expect it to turn out well that first day, you're SOL, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, that would be nice, but brains don't work like that. But when you see it, and so it's like I try to give a timeline to students as to when they can expect to see the new things they've learned show up in their work and that they can't force feed it. Your brain's not going to grow synapses any faster because you want them to. You know, so I'm like... Okay, you seem to know a bit about this one already. You seem to have some information on this. I'd expect three to five days. You're going to be like a lot more. You're going to find it's a lot easier. Or if it's totally new, 
I'd expect about 12 days before you can, you know, before you're feeling a little more comfortable with this. So mm -hmm. just be patient, relax. It'll all be fine. You know? I love that. You know, so it's like, it's, there are things like that where it's like, if you just make people at ease, um, you don't need to make the learning's tough and it takes your whole life. There's no mm -hmm. need to pile it on and like stab somebody in the hand while they're, you know, it's like, hey, you know, let's make this a little harder for you, Jerry. <laughs> You know, it's like, no, that's, that's unnecessary. You know? But so, we, but we do that so, to ourselves yeah. so often, right? We just like, we hobble yeah. ourselves with this expectation. Like <laughs> I should, I should draw feet. And now suddenly the drawing looks boring. It's crap. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, there, there is that thing where it's like, I, I think that one is the one that is probably the longest learning curve is um, trying to get and. And I think it's the, like, I've seen people talk about this, like studying and don't study anatomy too much because all your draws anatomy studies. Well, if all your drawing is anatomy studies and you habituate to anatomy studies, you'll draw terrible anatomy studies. You know? mm -hmm. um, but if you like learn morphology, if you, like, I, I recommend to art students not to study art exclusively, you know, study art, that's good. Um, but go out and exercise, go out and experience the world because if you exercise your ability to do anatomy amplifies you know if you know what it takes if you know the strain of lifting a stone and right. you have to draw somebody lifting a stone it's not an anatomy study anymore you go oh it hurts right here <laughs> I better, dead, you know, I gotta, how do i draw it hurts right here <laughs> yeah deadlift your own body weight you'll know exactly yes. where it hurts <laughs> yes, you know, oh i had to make myself look and that's another thing um <laughs> awkwardness um it they there there is a thing where I, i'm noticing that um there are hero poses which look terrible you know but awkward you know it's like people have forgotten to add awkwardness to their drawings hmm. you know that makes it sincere and authentic it's like people aren't super posed all in fact if they are in a heroic pose i just don't relate to it at all i just go oh heroic pose <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. That's not real. <laughs> I, I I don't know if it, I, I had kind of a, a rougher upbringing and young life. I, my folks were good, but I grew up in rough areas. And um, I've been in fistfights. I've, I've punched people and I've been punched. And when I see it in movies, I just go, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's not you know, it's like, it's so far from the topic. It's so, you know, it's like, like just the relationship. No, it's not like, like uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about this uh, because we were talking about, I, I was once in a fist fight and I uppercut a guy in the jaw and his teeth clacked when it happened. And I felt immediately regret and I reflexively went, oh no, like, you know, it's like, oh no, no, I didn't want that result. You know, it's like, I, this isn't. So, and he, he was mentioning, he goes, you know, there is that thing when you, when you're in a fight, there is immediate for everything you're doing, there's regret. You know, it's like you start, you're in it and you're like, why am I in this? What's going, you know, there's this, I don't want to be here sense of it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I don't like any part of this. And when, when you, it's super awkward. Like, you know, when you're in an actual tussle, it's awkward and weird. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, did I lose you? Okay, good. No, no, I'm <laughs> it's, oh, that's okay. Um, it's, it's very awkward and it's, 
it's painful, it's disturbing. And all those things, like when you, when I try to draw like fight sequences or things like that, I try to make sure that all that awkwardness and Is all in the there? parts that you go, oh, I, I wouldn't want it. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to be this. I wouldn't want to be in this at all. <laughs> you know, so I think that's um, that awkwardness and that uh, not doing hero things, just be, throwing in parts that are just like life make things super convincing. They they make it much more relatable and it's a longer term experience also because when you see the hero pose or you see those heroic things that they they teach you to do and you see in other artists' work, it's um it's repeating. It's an echo chamber. Whereas your own life, your own particular experiences with possible bad moments, um, they inform viewers. They go, oh wait, there's something I don't, I'm not necessarily comfortable with it. I don't feel like something heroic is going on. This is just weird. I think that's a, a, a tool that's missing quite a bit, that, that awkwardness in work and non-beauty. <laughs> Hello? Sorry, muted. <laughs> Still oh, here. that's okay. <laughs> uh, kind of right, like kind of like Watchmen, right? I mean, in terms of the narrative and you know oh, yeah. what a superhero <laughs> is, right? Yep. <laughs> kind of kind of a thing where it's like uh, they're if we don't have the grit of the world and things, they're not interesting. You know, you take out the wrinkles and it's just flat. You know, and so I, I think that's that's a part that um, is also a, a neglected area that needs that needs some work in artists. I, I think um, I think there's actually a frowniness about it. I think people, um, uh, they, they want to see beautified things, which is fine, but beautified things often um, diminish experience. They, they you know, when something's beautified and ideal, it means almost nothing is going on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that area is an area that also, uh, uh, when when we do things, we do trying to do the DIY art, you know, the <laughs> trying to I make love, the package. I love that way of saying it, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we lose that part, um, uh, the evocative, interesting part, basically, in, in, in favor of gloss. Got it. Uh, narrative is largely based in the one, not the other. Well, I got one more question for you. If you if you guys yes. got questions, shout them out. But uh, otherwise, I can get questions uh, to Paul later. But the question, I, and I think you're ideally suited for this. Uh, I like to understand is if you think that your success or people's success is built on talent, hard work, um, magic, like how does this whole thing <laughs> work? I wish I knew. Um... <laughs> Because you're I, I, incredibly I, talented, quote unquote. Like that's, I would look at your work and somebody would say that. They'd look at your anatomy and they'd be like, wow, you know, but is it talent? Is it hard work? What is that? Um, it's obsessive compulsiveness in large mm. part. Um, I, I, I don't know. I've looked, I've, in my own case, I've looked into it a bit and I'm not really sure because there's, I look at a lot of the trade offs. Like I've, I've, because of doing art stuff, I've had a couple of serious spinal injuries. Um, 
I, I think of the time that it's taken to do the artwork where I could have actually been out in the world living life. <laughs> you know, it's like um, giving giving life to these visuals and only partial, you know, a kind of a kind of weird type of life to them is an expense to my own experiences in my own life. Mm. Um, so, but I can't not do it. I, I have noticed that I've drawn every day of my life since I was three. I don't think I've missed a day ever. Uh, something here or there. Like by the time I was 21, I'd drawn over a million pictures. My, my sister was a, a nerd who liked math stuff like that. We calculated it out one day. <laughs> um, but it's like, um, I, I, I don't, I, I can't really say I know. Um, there is an obsessive quality to it that um, the more you see in, the more you see of it, you, the more you see between the, the shadows and the cracks, the more you want to see. So it drives itself. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a, I, I will say that a lot of my identity is wrapped up in it. And there, mm -hmm. there is a fear of losing myself if I don't make just like, almost like starving to death. You know, I want to make sure I'm eating, but there is a thing where I, I do have a thing where it's like, I do have to make sure I, I have pencil to paper and I think in this kind of weird world at least once a day, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure where it comes from. Uh, I, I don't, I wouldn't say talent because that does sound like magic. And I wouldn't say magic because that definitely sounds like magic. You know? <laughs> but, um, but it's not just the work either, right? Because there's, you know, we all know people that have worked and worked and worked and still not gotten results. Yeah, I, I think part of it is, is that um, even though I'm obsessive about art, that's not the only thing I'm obsessive about, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, uh, I always do tell artists to go live as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because that is the informing quality and also be dissatisfied. Like, um, part of the thing I note is that I use art to fill in the gaps of my own dissatisfaction. And, you know, it's like, when life is too tedious, I want an exciting adventure story in my eyes, or I want something beautiful in my eyes. And it's like knowing that um, the whole universe is mine in any time or place. You know, I can I can set up a visual and experience and dive into in a way I don't think the audience can. If I wanted to go set up a scene, set up a, a somewhat experience of being in Ford's theater when Lincoln was shot, you know, I can do that. I can build times and places. I can go across the universe. I can fulfill any hope and dream to a certain extent. And that's addictive. It's, um, uh, it's, it's got a certain potency that it's like, Oh, I do not want to, you know, it makes a lot of, um, after a, like an 11 hour session of drawing, if I have to go to the grocery store, everybody looks shockingly horrible to me. <laughs> I go, it could be because of the grocery stores I'm going to, I, you know, but, but I walk through and <laughs> I look and I'm like, wow, oh man. You know, and it's like, oh, it's because I've just been immersed in like um, crazy heroic worlds for the last several hours. And now I come, I come out and I'm like, oh, I'm back in the real world. It smells bad. It's like, you know, it's like what happened? You know? So there are parts where it definitely, 
you know, and also I don't, I don't worry about the technical parts. I'm not sure I ever worried about the technical parts um, that I hear other artists talk about. You know, they're, they're, they're very worried about tools and I, I again, you know, it's like, I, I want to build the house. I don't care if I'm using screwdrivers or hammers. You know, mm -hmm. I just I don't care if I'm fitting it origami style. I want the house. You know, so it's a, a lot of the things where people put prestige in, and I think that's where the confusion lies. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with a guy who was his artwork wasn't super fantastic, but he was very thrilled that people called him an artist. And for me, I'm less. You know, if you don't want to call me, that's fine. You know, it's like, I don't, the title doesn't mean much. Um, but if you take away my ability to go travel the universe, I'd be very upset. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I do think there is a confusion where a lot of people want prestige. Mm. They they confuse the, the being able to know these tools as a mechanism to prestige or notoriety. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ooh, that's going to be disillusioning, you know. But <laughs> it's also counter, you know. It's like it's it's counter the counter the endeavor, you know. It's like yeah. you can travel to different worlds, or you can have people praise you. And part of the problem is is that pe it takes people a long time to travel to those worlds with you, mm. you know. Um, and I, I hope I'm not being too long winded with this, but there's a. A painting principle that I, I was showing a young painter and I'm like look if you paint a painting and you embed it with things that a 20 year old sees and you give it to them when they're 20 but you also embed it with the things that a 50 year old sees when they're 50 they're gonna have a different painting and their painting if you've done it right will grow old with them the the thing that people project into what they're seeing has to do with their own life experiences. You know, so it's like the facial expressions that may seem grumpy or angry or whatnot to a 20 year old, when you're 50, you go, oh, that person's seen some hardship and they've resigned themselves to some things and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. You can, because you, you now, your brain has built a pattern and experience around your own losses, hardships, joys. You can see those things in a face that you couldn't see before. Right. So it's like there are parts of art where we get to have lifetimes and we can't necessarily expect our audiences to praise us for a lifetime they haven't seen yet that we've specialized in trying to build. You know, it's like the audience will never get to see the things that we the entirety of what we've put into anything. Hmm. So it's like that notoriety part and getting to be a famous artist thing. It's like, oof. We're asking people who we who haven't specialized in what we're doing <laughs> to join us to understand that we're traveling to different worlds. You know, it's like they're doing yeah. the best they can, but I'm not sure they can praise us for it until it's over. <laughs> you know, until they've gotten the full dose of what we've made, and yeah. it's, it doesn't seem realistic. So <laughs> that could just oh. be me being pessimistic. <laughs> Man, that's great. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I have as well. I yeah. didn't talk too much. I get, no, I get worried. No, man, it's been great, you know, and uh, a really nice way to kind of send, especially all the crew here off into uh, Thanksgiving weekend because we have this week off. Um, and oh, awesome. uh, yeah, so 
you know, I love the message that you've got where it's like, don't focus on the technical, don't worry about that. And, and I love the, the concepts you bring to that, the idea of the toolkit and the media and the big toolkit that we're missing, the cognitive, um, has really made uh, kind of a difference, I think, in my thinking here. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, my friend, have a great weekend. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. See ya. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.